Cuckoo Clock is proclaiming that it's Creature O'Clock. So ring that buzzer. It sounds like a lion roar. <sighs> and open the door to join us for the 56th meeting of the Animal Fan Club. I'm Meredith, the C-rate cockroach annihilator. And I'm a delicious mammal en fromage omelet, Mike. And we meet every week at our clubhouse we like to call the Dalmatian Station. <laughs> To talk about our favorite animals. Well, we lack an expertise, we make up for an unbridled enthusiasm and childlike wonder. Wow. So saddle up that miniature horse and hold on tight for the furriest, fin-filled, and feathered podcast in all of the kingdom animalia. What a wide kingdom it is. <laughs> wow. Yeah. <laughs> What's up, Mike? Oh, you know, Meredith, not a whole lot. Just chilling. How are you doing? You know, we're hanging in there. Pretty much spent the entire day, like, scrubbing the kitchen, top to bottom, bleaching every surface in my ongoing um, battle with the Deutsche Cockroach. <laughs> yeah. Sounds like your situation's really heating up over there, Meredith. It better not be. It better be dwindling, because I was shooting syringes of roach bait into all kinds of corners and crevices, and <sighs> it's just... It's just never ending, and there's like this moral, moral aspect to it that I'm just like feeling icky about, and it's like driven me to do some things that I feel icky about. But you know what? They're like threatening. You know, they carry things that aren't good for our health, and I feel like it's made the kitchen start to smell weird. Sure, which apparently is a thing. Like there's like cockroach smell, Ugh. which is so disgusting. And it's like we're not dirty people. Like I clean that kitchen twice a day on a normal day and it's like sure they still have taken root and they seem to be flourishing somehow yeah it's so disgusting i'm really sorry about that for you it's okay it's like it's very winter themed almost because there's just like snow showers of boric acid all day long uh-huh sure <laughs> yeah tis the season Tis the season just white it's either like snow or it looks like a colombian cocaine drug den <laughs> Hey, it's <laughs> just fine white powder all over. Yeah. I mean, who's to say which would be better? I'll take both. No, I don't want either. Fuck it. Right. Leave me alone, right. cockroaches. How are you, Mike? <laughs> How was your week at animals? It was okay, I guess. I just feel like I'm really bracing for hibernation here. Yeah. Um, I've been thinking about dogs and I've been thinking about dinos a little bit, like dinosaurs. Okay. Your chameleon journey last week had me thinking about <laughs> triceratops and steggies and yeah. different creatures. So that was fun, I guess. And then, um, I don't know, some owl spirit a little bit, some New York City owl energy. I'm kind of getting a little bit of love from Barry, the owl, and from Rockefeller. I love <laughs> every time I'm running through that area, I'm always, I have my peepers open for Barry. But I'll never see him. Yeah. I think. But I I mean, I don't know, Meredith. I think I'm also appreciating the Arctic Fox's insulation circumstance. Today I was on a city bike and I was biking across a bridge like over the rail yard where like the Long Island Railroad trains and the New Jersey Transit trains are here in uh, Queens. And it was very cold and very windy. And I was wearing just like, a, you know, thin blue jeans 
and it was very cold. My legs were very cold by the time that I finished my bike journey. And it's like 40 degrees Fahrenheit here. Yeah. So it's not even really like that cold as far as the Arctic Fox is concerned. (laughs) Hell no, no. And so I was just trying to channel some of that energy as well. Yeah, I know. We're just, it's just going to get worse and worse. I've been um, channeling some Chevrotane energy. Ooh. Oh, yeah. You got your tiny little hoofs. I've got those. I already had that, but I started wearing my um, retainer again. Mm hmm. And so it's a lot of, I'm doing a lot of talking like this. So I sound like I'm a Chevrotane with long teeth. Yeah, with your fangs hanging out the front of your face. You're like, fangs. My long fangs. Yeah. So I don't, I actually. Lucky for all of you listeners, I took the retainer out for recording purposes. <laughs> nice. Um, but other than that, I'm trying to wear it all the time to kind of get my teeth back to where I want them to be. Um, so, yeah, just doing a little, just feeling my chevrotain self. I love that for you. I think that's a good journey. <laughs> Thank you. And I also had a really big guffaw because I realized, again, some like major um, mispronunciation on my part uh-huh. in a former long past episode. So I was watching Schitt's Creek and I don't know. Have you seen all of them at this point, Mike? I- I'm not sure that I'm the most up on the latest seasons, but okay. I have seen the majority of them. Yeah. So I think this is at the beginning of the sixth season, but essentially Alexis decides to get a pet turtle. Uh-huh. And she has it sitting on like the table in her hotel room and Moira walks in and she says something like, tell me that's not a testudine. And I was like, oh, my God, it's testudine, not testudine, <laughs> which is what I was calling turtles. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, leave it to Moira Rose to teach me the correct pronunciation. <laughs> well, but I don't know. Can <laughs> Can you count on her though, like her pronunciation or on testudine? I don't know. I think it's it sounds like it makes more sense than testudine. Fair, <laughs> fair. After I looked at it written out, I was like, oh yeah, that seems like a more appropriate guess than what I just went with. Sure, but whatever, it's fine. Who cares? Not Moira Rose, I'll tell you that much. Mm-hmm. And I don't either. So yeah, testudine. Mm. Who knew? Who knew? Well, Meredith, it sounds like we should just kind of kick it off. What do you say? I would I would love to do that. Well, um, I go first, so... Yeah. Yeah. It's your time to shine with that lit from within glow. <laughs> you do have a nice lighting situation here. All right, well, um, you ready, Meredith? I am so ready. All right. Texana you. Texana we. Texana who? Texana me. Kingdom. Animalia. Still not a show about vehicles. Philo. Cordata. Spine times the right time. Class. Aves. Kakao. Order. Procellaria forms. Tubno seabirds. Family. Diomedidaea. Albatrosses. It's trust time. Genus. Diomedia. These trosses aren't just good, they're great. Species. Epimorpha. The southern royal albatross. Flap your wings and eat some squid. Squawk, squawk, squawk. I yes, this is great. Yeah, we're doing trosses. Are you into it? It's tross time, baby. Yeah, I love albatrosses. They're weird, right? They are weird. I've there's a bar in my neighborhood called Albatross. That's so and cool. I have to say, most of my nights that have started there have ended up being weird. <laughs> Everybody's got that bar. Well, not these days, but 
I used to. I myself. All right. Well, so we got tax facts, Meredith. We got Kingdom Animalia, Phylum Chordata. All right, our, our vertebrate friends, class Aves, Cacaw. You know all about them. We got birds. We're talking birds. <laughs> now we're in order: Procellariiforms. Okay. Tube-nosed seabirds. Tube-nosed seabirds. Got it. Yep. We got four families. We got albatrosses, petrels, shearwaters, and storm petrels. The term petrel has actually been applied to all members of this order, or more commonly, all families except albatrosses. So you could say this order is petrels and albatrosses. Okay. Or you could just say this order is all petrels. Or you could say this order is petrels, shearwaters, storm petrels, and albatrosses. <laughs> but the bottom line is that they have these nasal passages that connect to the upper bill that are called naricorns. Nares. Yeah, similar to nares. Mm-hmm. On your stingery friend, your stingray friend. Yeah. But they're like tubes that connect the bill to okay. their body. It's like a little snorkel through their beak, kind of. Exactly. Yeah, a little beak snorkel. Cute. Yeah. And then the bills are straight and deeply grooved, and they have hooked tips. <laughs> yeah. Got it. And then they're also unique in that they're split. The bills are split into between seven and nine horny plates. Whoa. I know. And then another thing that separates procellariiforms is that they produce a stomach oil, which is made up of wax esters and triglycerides that's stored in the proventriculus. <laughs> Proven- okay. Proventriculus. And... That's used against predators as well as uh, like it's a great energy rich food source for chicks and babies and for adults when they're going through a long flight. Wait, so like where do they, how do they get at it? I don't really know. This stuff. Is it like a regurgitation station? (laughs) Well, it's like, it's a, it's a, the proventriculus is specifically a part of avian anatomy and it's shaped like a rod and it's located between the esophagus and the gizzard okay and so it's essentially like a glandular part of the stomach that can store food or commence food digestion before it okay is in the gizzard okay i think i get it yeah i think yeah it's all good yeah it's an exciting new part of bird anatomy for you to get into i know right <laughs> So now we're at the family, the Diomedidae. This is albatross territory. The entire family is albatrosses. These birds, they love pretty much the entire southern hemisphere, south of the tropics, and they're in the northern Pacific Ocean, but they are not really in the northern Atlantic. Interesting. I know, and I picked the albatross because it's famous from the rhyme of the ancient mariner where the albatross is to be worn around the neck of the man who killed the albatross, you know, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. But I was expecting the ancient mariner to be in the northern Atlantic, and yes. clearly they were not. Clearly they were in a different area. Yeah, I guess I've always associated them with, like, I don't know, maybe that, like, Newfoundland, kind of northern North America area into Greenland. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why I thought that, but I guess that's just not. Yeah. It ain't true, girl. I was tempted to reread The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, but this is a animal podcast and not poetry podcast. So instead I read about the albatross. But I'm curious, write in clubbies and let us know 
from your reading of the rhyme of the ancient mariner, where did it take place? And was there perhaps a bit of poetic license that was taken in terms of placing albatrosses in an area where they do not typically yeah. habitate? Huh. Mm. Very interesting. Albatrosses are the most efficient travelers of all vertebrates. They found a way to expend zero energy when they soar over the ocean for hundreds of miles. And they use dynamic soaring and slope soaring Hmm. to achieve this. And what they do is they cross boundaries between air masses of different velocities. So it's like the one block of air is moving in one direction at one speed and another block of air is moving in another. That's essentially what happens with like weather systems, you know, like colliding masses of air essentially. Yeah. And so they use these wind gradients and wind shears and all this type of stuff. And then they'll use slope soaring, which is different, which just gains elevation. Mm -hmm. And an example of this is if wind is blowing at a rock face say or a cliff yeah if the wind is blowing directly at a cliff then it will be kind of pushed upward peregrine falcons and other uh like raptors do the exact same thing yes exactly so i think that's fun the albatrosses are split into 22 species across six extant genera there are four extinct genera as well so now we're in the genus the dio media these are the great albatrosses the largest albatrosses there are six to seven species most but not all authorities agree on that (laughs) (laughs) of course (laughs) agree to disagree apparently so these giants range across the southern ocean and nest for the most part on isolated oceanic islands the earliest known fossils of the genus are from the middle miocene which was about 12 to 15 million years ago oh yeah at that point the genera diomedia had already diverged Now we're down to the species, the Epomorpha. This is the Southern Royal Albatross. It's one of the two largest albatross birds. The average wingspan is three meters, which is 9.8 feet. So coming back to our method of measuring birds, which is that we put the wingtips of the birds at my feet and then the wingtip either tickles my nose or my chin. But in this case, you on the head, I'd be sniffing the armpit of that (laughs) albatross that the left wing tip would be on my toes and I'd be sniffing the right armpit of that tross like that is a significant wingspan. So that's even bigger than the uh, golden eagle, which I think is the largest wingspan that I had encountered up till now. That's I've never thought about that. Yeah. Trosses are huge. I've never. I mean, I've obviously never encountered Especially one. the Southern yeah, Royal trosses. Albatross. <laughs> trosses be huge. This tross is a unit. <laughs> We're talking about a total population of about 28,000 to 29,500 pair in this 1997 survey that was referenced. They mainly live between 30 degrees south and 45 degrees south. And they'll range along the Southern Ocean. They'll typically forage within a... 1250 kilometer radius of their breeding site which is 775 miles which i would just like to say that they will forage across an area with a radius of 775 miles which is fucking bonkers to me it is it's big yeah they're mostly around new zealand that's where they nest okay but then they will also fly all the way to south america and they will be on both the east and the west coast of southern south america mm-hmm Hmm. Their nests are mainly on the rat-free sub-Antarctic 
Campbell's Island, which is near New Zealand. Mm. They eat squid. You said, I'm, I'm sorry, you said rat free? Yeah, there's no rats. There's no rats there. Okay. I also heard the other day that there's no snakes in New Zealand. Isn't that surprising? I've heard that too, actually. Yeah, crazy. Sorry, I totally interrupted you. Well, I wonder if that, by extension, I wonder if there are any squamates at all. Oh. Any squamates <laughs> at all? Are there any squamates at all? Okay. So, well, what about eating? <laughs> well, they eat squid, they eat fish, they'll eat carrion, crustaceans, and salps. What's a salp? A salp is a barrel-shaped planktic tunicate. It moves by contracting, thereby pumping water through its gelatinous body, and <laughs> is one of the most efficient examples of jet propulsion in the animal kingdom. Whoa. So another creature that's like all abs, I guess. In a way. <laughs> yeah, in a way. I'd say the salp is mostly abs. They're like, they've like fully mastered the gram technique. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of contracting. Yeah. <laughs> salp. Yeah. Never even heard of them. I well, Meredith, brace yourself. Uh-oh. That's what I have to say. Okay, okay. <laughs> now let's talk about making more. Let's talk about tross. Tross true mo- romance. Yeah, tross totally tubular time together. <laughs> Albatromance. Albatromance. No. Yeah. Well, (laughs) just as we can't seem to find more than one real usable joke regarding albatross romance, albatrosses (laughs) typically find no more than one partner. They are monogamous (laughs) and they form long-term pair bonds. They form and they form long-term pair bonds, which could last the entire life of the animal. In fact, all procellary forms share this trait. Okay. So we're going all the way back up to order now. Sure. So this entire order of birds, <laughs> the tube-nosed birds, they are monogamous and they form long-term pair, bond, pair bonds, which may last for their life. So typically, these procellary forms will get to laying their one egg oh. every year. They will only lay one egg every year, but these larger trosses actually only lay one egg every other year. Wow. I know. They're special little chickies. Yeah, they are certainly special little chickadees. And so the Southern Royal Albatross lays its biennial egg in November or December. Okay. And then both parents incubate the egg and rear the young. I have to say, albatross babies are so... Yes. Well, there's a very low mortality rate Hmm. because this is part of this. If there's only one egg, because remember, we've encountered this before with some of the larger birds where like the Pell's fishing owl may lay Uh two eggs, but only one egg will ever survive. They will not rear two children. They will rear the strongest of the two and the other one will die. Yeah. And so I think it's noteworthy that in this other large bird species, that there's like one egg. Once that egg hatches, that little baby bird doesn't really die. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like part of the advantage of being so big is that you're not preyed upon. And especially if you yeah. live on a rat free island, <laughs> you know, yeah, exactly. it's a little easier to avoid consumption and also disease because rats are like cockroaches are disease vectors. Right. Exactly. Oh, gosh, that's so interesting. Yeah. 
And for the procellar uniforms, the incubation and fledging times are longer than most birds. Huh. So it takes a little bit longer to get the bird out of the nest, but once the chick has fledged, there's no further parental care. Okay. Got it. And you are out of the nest. Yeah. Quite literally. Yeah. Go be gone. Get to it. Never want to see your face again. <laughs> get out of here, you tube beak. Yeah, listen up, tube beak. It's time for you to leave. So, Meredith, that's kind of the extent of my Tross journey. Do you have any Tross questions, queries, concerns? Um, What led you to the Tross? I was thinking about the rhyme of the ancient mariner, and I was just thinking about like what fun creatures could I do sort of thing. I was kind of feeling like a different journey, uh, you know, than like what I've been doing lately. And so like, I just kind of, I don't know. I just like went for it, I guess. I, I love that. I do. Did you come across in your reading? I can't remember if it's the, the taking off the landing or both. Like there's some of the best soarers and flyers, but their landings, I think I've heard are like highly, highly clumsy. Oh, have a hard time coming down. <laughs> well, I mean, who doesn't? Right. Right. Aww. I didn't see anything in particular about that, Meredith. But I will say that what I did encounter was more just about their soaring yeah. and their flying ability and less about their landing ability. So I would believe that they would be, op- I mean, they're clearly optimized for flight, you know. Yeah. Over long distances, as you mentioned. Yeah. And also, I mean, that's a lot of wing. Like a 10-foot wingspan <laughs> yeah. is like kind of a lot to deal with, you know. That's so much oh my gosh I'm really having a hard time kind of like wrapping my head around like if there were one in here right now standing on my bed with its wings spread (laughs) yeah I think it I think it might be confined by your room you know it's like a fucking dinosaur yeah it's possible like it could be tip to tip like wall to wall yeah that's so funny wall to wall wing tip to wing tip from ashes to ashes and wingtip to wingtip. <laughs> From the wingtip to the wall. To the wall. <laughs> till the sweat drips down my cloaca. <laughs> <laughs> but I have to say that they're like one of the most, like they look like they've got like a full beat on like at all times because they're like this pure white, but then their eyes are so gorgeously kind of dark. Yeah. And painted almost. Yeah. It's they're really quite gorgeous. And then they've got these like bright yellow beaks. It's like a very striking bird, I would say. Yeah. Well, and in the different species, in the different species of trosses, there's slightly different beats. You know, it's kind of like mm-hmm. a Chicago drag versus New York drag sort of thing. <laughs> sure. Sure. <laughs> so I encourage everyone to get into that. Yeah. Look at those pictures. I'm definitely going to do that later. Yeah, it's worth it. <laughs> a little trust time. Well, let's take a break. Yeah. Hey, yo, Wendy. What's up, Brenda? Not a whole lot. Just chilling on this comfy couch. I was going to say, Brenda, I'm not used to seeing such lush furniture here in the Subnivian Zone. That thin layer of blissful peace sandwiched between the earth below and the snowpack above. Well, Wendy, it is tough to find the right furniture that can withstand the particular circumstances of the Subnivian Zone. Thankfully, Brand Clubby's got us covered with Subnivian Sofas, seasonal furniture for mice, 
voles, and shrews. Wow, that sounds amazing. You said subnivian sofas were seasonal furniture? That's correct, Wendy. One of the greatest troubles with furnishing your subnivian home is the impending melting of snow, which is sure to ruin most normal upholstery. Incredible. So you purchase new furniture each year? Correct. You can sign up for an easy subscription plan of five years for 20% savings. It's like the fifth year is totally free. Amazing. What about discreet delivery? I'm concerned about predators finding out my location. Well, Brand Clubby is partnering with the Spore Network, utilizing secret mushroom pathways to deliver your furniture to its destination. This helps ensure predators don't see our Brand Clubby delivery vans. Hmm, not sure how that works, but I do trust Brand Clubby. Myself also. Well, Brenda, is it just sofas that are available? Of course not. Brand Clubby's got some Nivian chairs, ottomans, end tables. Lamps? Yes, lamps. And also dinettes, bookcases, desks. Bureaus? Yes, bureaus. And also throw pillows and rugs and... Chaise lounge? Yes, Wendy, and so many more. Log on to Brand Clubby's web portal for more info. I bet they're on the app too. I'm logging on this moment. Oh my gosh, have we made it back to another edition of Animal Magazine? I think we have, Meredith. Back in the spooky place. The inexplicably spooky Animal yeah. Magazine. Exceptionally spooky. Well, what have you got, Mike? So this is a classic, but I just thought, how can we talk about Animal Magazines without at least discussing Ranger Rick's Nature Magazine? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I remember this. I almost did a classic kid one as well, but I, I got swayed in another direction. But yeah, please. I was first published in January of 1967. There are 10 editions per year. It is published by the United States National Wildlife Federation. It contains articles and activities for kids ages seven and up. The primary objective of the magazine is to instill a passion for nature and to promote activity outdoors. Topics may include recycling Christmas trees to provide proper habitat for fish. Oh, cool. I know. I want to read that. <laughs> the titular character is a raccoon protagonist, Ranger Rick. Oh my God, yeah. First issue, January 1967, Ranger Rick made an appearance as a raccoon who helps extinguish a forest fire. So that was sort of the genesis of Ranger You think Rick, he's friends with Smokey you know. the Bear? Probably. Uh, he's definitely friends with Scarlet Fox and Boomer Badger. Boomer Badger. Yeah. <laughs> and then if... God, I forgot about this stuff. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, what about Ranger Rick for children under the age of seven? So there's Ranger Rick Jr., which is for ages four to seven. Whoa. And then there's another publication called Ranger Rick Cub, which is aimed at children zero to four years old. Oh, the zero year olds, they're clamoring for representation. <laughs> yeah, at two months old, babies are just really looking for raccoons to tell them about extinguishing forest fires. You know what I mean? I know I was. Yeah, myself also. 
What have you got, Meredith? I have chosen Western Horseman, a.k.a. the, quote, America's favorite horse magazine since 1936, based in Fort Worth, Texas. Yahoo! Yeehaw. Yeehaw. In case you missed it, this is a monthly magazine first published in 1936, and it specializes in articles on Western writing, which I didn't know until today that Western writing, as opposed to English writing, is a style of writing associated with the ranching traditions of the American West. It's like cowboy stuff, including the use of lassos and uh, what's called neck reining. I guess, as opposed to reins that are attached to like the bit in the horse's mouth. Like mouth reining, maybe? Yeah, mouth reining or bit reining. I don't know. Don't come at me, horse people. I would love to flip through an uh, an edition of Western Horsemen. I think it would be fascinating, especially, especially with articles like this. So recent articles include resourceful ways to build a fence or ranching in the rough. Arizona's O-R-O lives up to its rawhide reputation. Not a rawhide reputation. <laughs> you better believe it, Mike. Or 25 gift ideas for a bona fide horseman. And my personal favorite, two buck chuck wows bareback riders. Well, let me tell you one thing, honey. If there's anything that'll wow a bareback rider, it's a little bit of two buck chuck. Right? You take that from me. <laughs> Yeah, so that is Western Horseman. I mean, I would love to read an issue of Western Horseman. I think it sounds fascinating. It does sound really great. (laughs) Those were some pretty good animal magazines, Meredith. I agree. Check them out. Check them out. Texana you. Texana we. Texana who. Texana me. Kingdom. Animalia. It's like our name implies. Phylum. Cordata. This one is more spiny than its cousins. Class. Mammalia. They're cute, they're fuzzy, they're venomous. Order. Primates. In the suborder of Stripsirines. Family. Lorsidae, they're slim and or arboreal. Genus. Nytisibus, that's Greek for night monkey. Species. Nytisibus javanicus. They're super cute, but they'll F you up. It's the Javan slow loris. You are finally doing the slow loris. Finally, what does that mean? I mean, I've known that it was happening forever. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm not at all surprised that the slow loris is in play. <laughs> play yeah oh they are in play but it's here we've got it amazing it's one of those animals that i remember in elementary school like my friend amanda and i like somehow i don't know if we saw them at the zoo i know the cincinnati zoo doesn't have them now but i think they have some of their um cousins the patos that look a lot like slow lorises Uh but my friend amanda and i like had this picture that we cut out of the newspaper about two slow lorises and we would like trade it back and forth like who gets the slow loris picture today like who gets to hold on to it uh-huh it, <laughs> that sounds totally like something you would do for the record yeah it very much reminded me of like the weasel zine from pen 15 you know my sure. favorite yeah the weasel zine, the weasel zine. <laughs> you felt very seen by the weasel zine episode didn't you yes yes 
I can't put too fine a point on that. Um, okay. So anyway, again, so Laura says, what a weird creature. Uh, it's kind of like the chameleon. I don't think there are as many like weird specialized adaptations, but there are plenty of fun things to talk about with the Javans. Oh, Laura, get ready. Let's just do some quick text facts. Kingdom, Animalia. We got it. Phylum, Chordata. Also got it. Class, Mammalia. Still got it. Order, primates. We haven't done a primate in a while, right? It's been a minute. It has been a minute. But what's cool, and I didn't really think about this before. I've never really considered suborders of primates. Um, It's probably more interesting than the order itself in this case. Humans, monkeys, apes. These are in the haplorines, which means the dry-nosed primates. (laughs) We have dry noses. Aww. Cute. Versus the strepsorine, which is the wet-nosed primates. And that is the slow loris is in the wet-nosed primates category. Um, which I'll just quickly say this real quick. Because the strepsorine, they all have a wet nose, which is called the renarium. Renarium. Mm-hmm. Wet noses. But anyway, we'll get to their appearance and everything in a moment. Okay, so we're in the strepsorine suborder of primates. Um, And when we talk about primates more generally as an order, this means uh, like large brains, visual acuity, dexterous hands, and a shoulder girdle. (laughs) I just wanted to get shoulder Uh, girdle in Thank you for getting the shoulder girdle in. Shoulder girdle is very important. I always watch these workout videos where she does like, special shoulder girdle exercises. She's like, put your hand on your hip like you're sassy and pull your elbow forward to stretch out your shoulder girdle. I was always like, like you're sassy. Just like you're sassy. Yeah. It's very cute. And also, I just love the word girdle. Right. That's the real, that's your real interest in it. It's not the word shoulder. It's not shoulder. I just, any excuse to bring up girdles is an excuse enough for me. (laughs) Okay, so other examples of strepsorines include, we were talking last week about Madagascar, which is where a lot of lemurs live. Uh-huh. So they're also one of the strepsorines. Galagos or Galagos, the bush babies, which is another thing I'd love to cover one of these days. And the lorsids. So lorsids referring to the lorises. Mm-hmm. When we get into the family of lorsidae, They're slim and arboreal, so they like to live in trees. They're typically nocturnal. They've got kind of tight, woolly fur and big eyes that kind of sit right on the front of their face. Uh Uh-huh. And they tend to live in tropical and Central Africa and Southeast Asia. So now we can get into the genus of, I'm probably mispronouncing this word, but Nycticebus. Okay. Nycticebus. (laughs) which is Greek for night monkey. So again, these are primates that are primarily nocturnal. So night monkeys. Night monkeys, sure. But it's also the genus name for slow lorises more generally, as opposed to their cousins like the slender lorises, for instance, or the pato is another one, or the enguantibos, which they all kind of look very, very similar to me, not being an expert on lorises. Slow lorises tend to be uh, located mostly in like Bangladesh, Northeast India, the Philippines, China, and like our loris of the moment, the Java and loris, they live in Java of Indonesia. So 
There are eight species of lorises, the jobin, which is one of them. And this is like your albatross. There's just been like years and years of controversy over what's a subspecies, what's its own species. Sure, sure. Yeah. Everybody can agree that there's six to seven species. <laughs> right, right. And I think it's like even up and through like the 2000s, there has been like still like a reorientation, like who's going to get promoted to principal dancer this year? It's like, who's going to get promoted to species <laughs> from subspecies? Um, so this is like all going to be determined by things like difference in size and essentially like difference in pelage. So they're like fur color. Uh-huh. I love a pelage. I, oh my gosh. And these guys, their pelage is actually quite beautiful. I'll describe it right now. The Javan... Uh, loris, slow loris specifically. So their pelage is going to feature essentially like a brown stripe, like a dark brown stripe that kind of comes up their back. And once it kind of comes above their eyes, it forks off four times. So like a fork above one eye and a fork above another. Wow. And so on either, so interspersed in those forks are like white diamonds. It's like a little Liz Taylor moment. <laughs> White diamonds. Um, remember that perfume? White. Elizabeth Taylor's White I Diamonds. I don't. <laughs> it's very 90s. She used to be in the commercials for it. They would always air around Christmas time. And she had like her bright blue eyes. And she'd be like, white, white diamonds. diamonds. It's a fragrance for slow lorises. <laughs> and I, I guess going further into uh, what they look like. So they're a little bit shorter than a foot long. Um they they're only about like one and a quarter pounds to one and a half pounds. Oh no. They're just so cute little. Like other lorises, they've got like a pretty round head and then like really short little stubby ears that kind of disappear within the fur. A narrow snout and again like huge eyes. Yeah. Like those big loris eyes. Prominently placed on the those big loris. She's got big loris eyes. And interestingly, they have arms and legs of equal length, uh-huh. which is unlike some of their loris cousins and like pato cousins, for instance. Um, and essentially, this enables them to climb between branches and vines very, very easily. And also, in regard to their big eyes, this is another vocab alert. Tapetum lucidum is essentially like a reflective outer eye layer that helps them to see at night. And it's the same layer on like a cat's eye that when like you kind of see a cat far away in the dark, uh huh, it looks like they've got that like reflective, like kind of scary. Yeah, the glowy eye thing. Yeah, that kind of like demon eye thing that cats sure. have. It, yeah. The lemurs have the same thing. And so sadly, I'll talk about this later, but when those participating in the illegal exotic pet trade are trying to snatch lemurs out of their habitats. They can like shine a light into these arboreal regions and they can catch them by the shining of their eyes. Uh-huh. Which I I don't like that part of the loris tail. But anyway, so interestingly about these lorises or these slow lorises more generally is they actually have 15 to 16 thoracic vertebrae Unlike their cousins, which have like 12 to 14. So again, their cousins in terms of like the in the Lorsidae family or the primate family only have 12 to 14. So these extra vertebrae make them more flexible and kind of twisty. So again, to aid in their kind of climbing through jungle vines. 
and things like that. So actually not a lot, given that they're nocturnal and they're hanging out in these dense forests, not a lot is known about their social structure. Uh, Other than that, they kind of hang out mostly alone, solitary, or in pairs. Sure. But they do sleep kind of curled up on branches. So I have to say really quickly, I think it was like one of the early discoverers of the Loris. They said it had like the body of a monkey, the face of a bear, and moved like a sloth. (laughs) (sighs) Similar to sloths, they um, have a very, very slow metabolic rate. Okay. So I think it's something at like 40%. Compared to other primates, because I when I think of a little primate, I think of kind of a quick little guy. Yeah, kind but, of like high strung or like especially the like the monkeys, the arboreal monkeys. Yeah, they're very quick. They're very like darty, kind of. I don't know. They seem like tightly wound, right? Right. Whereas like the loris, its defense is that it moves so slowly that it doesn't disturb anything around it, so it just kind of remains undetected. Hence the name, the slow loris. That's why it's the slow loris, yeah. Yeah, and they do have another interesting defense that I'll talk about momentarily. But this is so cute. So they're known to be super duper shy. And um, in Indonesia, they're even called malu-malu, which means shy one. Because they actually like hold their hands up over their face. Oh, they're so shy. They're shy. And they're predators, though. They actually, you know, they are, I think, fairly effective in their defense mechanisms of moving really slow. But when they are preyed upon, it comes from, like, hawk eagles, orangutans, which surprised me. For some reason, I thought orangutans were more, like, just leaf eaters. But, no, they actually do eat small invertebrates. They're tremendously violent animals. I had no... I really had no idea. Yeah. I knew gorillas were very violent, but I... Didn't know orangutans were. If I remember right, the orangutans are like very, very violent. Hey, lines of inquiry. Not as violent as humans. Am I right? Uh, High five. No, no, Meredith. Idiot. Another predator is the bitterong, a.k.a. the... Ooh, the bearcat. The bearcat. And then also civets. Is that popcorn? No, it's the bearcat. Orville Redenbacher Bearcat taste test, or what was that thing we did? That was so long ago. Well, it was which brand clubby? Yeah, obviously. Obviously. I'm sorry. Yeah, it was a partnership with Brand Clubby. Yeah. Orville um, Redenbacher's not giving us any of their dollars. We will not be advertising their popcorn. Hell no. I hate microwave popcorn, okay? Oh. Brand Clubby only uses the most delicious artesian air popped <laughs> sun. I don't know. This. Sun- yeah, this statement has not been evaluated by the Brand Clubby Board of <laughs> Animal Investors. Off the cuff, I'm sorry. I can't be contained. No, that's okay. Don't fire me. It's, 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 no, <laughs> I will not. So now we could get to like kind of the f- the funnest, aka the scariest part about the slow loris. So they're actually venomous. What? Which is crazy. Right, right. you mentioned that. They're venomous. So this is this is nuts. Okay. So they actually secrete this toxin from what's called a brachial gland that is kind of um on us, I think it would be like behind the elbow, maybe kind of up towards the shoulder. So it'd be like I was kind of like licking my inner arm. <laughs> what they do is they have a gland there and they lick it 
And when it mixes with their saliva, it forms this like toxic mixture. So what they do is they'll actually like lick it and then it kind of hangs out in the grooves in their canines and in like their uh, dentition. Okay. <laughs> cool. So they groom themselves with it and they also groom their young with it uh-huh. to make them undesirable to predators. So they actually did this test where they like took some of this brachial fluid from this gland held it up to various um, predators of the slow loris, including the bear cat, a clouded leopard, and a sun bear. Sun bear sounds so cute. Yeah, it does. And they were all kind of like mildly repelled. But when it was mixed with the saliva of the slow loris, they were like, hell no, get that away from me. So there's some sort of like chemical reaction that happens that really makes it highly repellent to predators and actually this might be interesting to you mike as a uh cat allergic e what sure yes a cat allergic e so actually this toxin it resembles a protein found in cat dander huh interestingly enough i don't i don't know the connection is there but it's true me neither it's true i mean while in the bear cat is a is Sensitive to it, but it's not actually a cat. Right. And neither is the loris. They're not. Uh-huh. The, I guess the closest relation would be at the level of mammalia mm. of to the cat, you know? Hmm. Anyhow, so this makes them the only venomous primate and only one of a few venomous mammals, including like the vampire bat, two species of shrew, our platypus. Yep. Raise a flipper. Yeah. And the, uh, another kind of shrew-like thing. It kind of looks like a like a red-haired Desmond a little bit. Oh. Selenodon. Yeah, that's another venomous little like shrew-like thing. So. <sighs> so they actually also use this venom for bites. So like I mentioned, the venom will actually pull in the grooves on their canines. And this venom has flesh-rotting capabilities. It seems like it might be used in like against predators or to kill their prey but they mainly eat like insects and tree sap and like flower nectar so it really doesn't make sense in that usage but it seems like it's most often exercised on other lorises the reason i did the loris is because i came across this article in new york times about the like flesh-eating venom of the slow loris right in their series called trilobites which is really fun Researchers in Java tracked 82 of these Javan slow lorises over eight years. And they would kind of do periodic captures of all of them. And they all wore little like radio collars. And every capture that they had, 20% of these 82 lorises would have fresh wounds. Like rotting, festering, fresh wounds. So it's like very common to come across a loris that has been... hurt by another loris's venomous bite and so for this reason they're actually very difficult to care for in zoos often though i do i think san diego has a pretty good population um i think i read like over 70 so lorises that they keep there but it is difficult to have them in zoos because they attack each other Hmm. they will even they don't typically attack humans i think there's only been like one report of a human dying from a um slow loris bite but it can send someone into anaphylactic shock wow to get bitten by a loris so now we can get into like the least fun part of this 
presentation, and that is their, I guess, prominence within the illegal exotic pet trade because they are unbelievably cute. They are like really freaking cute, super duper cute. Look them up because they just look like little like little teddy bears. They just look like these living toys. Yeah, they're adorable. Adorbs. They look like living toys, but they're just they're very hard to care for because they're nocturnal. So they're often going to be like their most active when humans are asleep. They're hard to feed. They're just they're very easily startled. They're very shy, like I mentioned. Yes. And a lot of their behaviors that we interpret as like, oh, my God, he's so cute. Or they're actual like terrified, defensive behaviors. So um, there was a. A YouTube clip, I think the name of the loris was Sonia or something. It's like, Sonia loves being tickled. And it shows this loris like with its arms up and they're like tickling her. But that's like a major defensive position. Like that's where they get in when they want to start like licking their licking their arms to produce this defensive <laughs> toxin. And also too, when they're they're kind of pulled out of the woods they're not treated very well they're very sensitive like the capillaries in their hands are very sensitive they're very prone to injury and they actually detooth them to make them less dangerous wow and so i unintentionally saw like a footage of just teeth being ripped out of a loris oh man it was just awful so these are not pets they're very hard to keep as pets even zoos have a really 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 hard time keeping them and this is supposedly in like better conditions and with people that know what they're doing right so they are not pets but they're also used often in like traditional medicine as like an aphrodisiac or painkillers for childbirth but i do love this part so in a lot of like southeastern cultures they're viewed as good luck and gatekeepers of the heavens Uh in some belief systems that it's like a promise that when you move on to the afterlife, there's a slow loris waiting for you. What a lovely promise. So it's like some people get to fly around with angels. Some people get their own planet. Some people get like 40 virgins. And other people get slow lorises. <laughs> yeah. I know what I want. I want a future with slow lorises, but slow, lor- slow lorises who are there in a consensual way. Yeah. Slow lorises who I know that are like living their best life the way they want to live it. With unlimited tree sap and bugs to feast on. Yeah, that's a pleasant thought, Meredith. So again, because of like deforestation and fragmented habitats and this illegal pet trade, they are critically endangered. And that's about the extent of my Loris presentation. But I just I had to read the caption on this one photograph from this New York Times article because this made me laugh. Anthony and I were laughing about this. I just have to read the correct thing. Hold on. Hit me with it. Hit me with your Loris. Okay. So it. I don't know if you can. Maybe I can hold this up. You can see he's like literally the cutest Loris I've ever seen. Can you see him? Yes. Confirm. Cutest Loris ever. Okay. And this is (laughs) the caption. Fernando, a killer slow Loris. He has the fewest body measurements of the group studied by Dr. Nakaris because he's so vicious to handlers. Like, you see this face. You see his name, Fernando, followed by a killer slow Loris. A killer slow Loris. And I mean, he is so cute. Yeah, he looks pretty deadly. 
I don't think he does. He's also wearing this like little radio collar. So he looks like a, he, they are so cute. Like I understand the like attraction to them as pets, but Mm -hmm. they are not pets. Oh Mm -hmm. my gosh. He's so cute. (laughs) Do you have any Loris queries? No, I thank you. I, I'm think of it as being a kind of popular creature to talk about because it's a fun name. It's adorable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I didn't know any of this sort of like mix your secretion with your spit and bite (laughs) people with it to have them go into anaphylactic shock. That's who, I mean, something I'm going to be trying out for sure. Yeah. Lick your armpit and bite someone. See what happens. Yeah. (laughs) Lines of inquiry. (laughs) Yeah. And then, um, I just have a million more questions about Madagascar. I know. See, I was torn. I was like, I kind of wanted to do uh, like a a Madagascar specific animal. But then I just saw this article in Fernando and I was like, I got to do a slow loris. Yeah. But we've got time. We do. There's time for salps. (laughs) There's time for orangutans. There's time for Madagascar. Salps coming to you next week. (laughs) Coming to a theater near you. Yeah. But until then. Break time. Break. From the studios who brought you Mustang's Revenge and King Keratin's Curse comes a new film of faith, doubt, and possession. And the lizards caught in the eternal fight for good and evil. These marks, I don't know, they just appeared this morning. But, 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 it simply can't be. What? You think I did this to myself? What church do you attend, Christy? I don't go to church. Christy Chameleon seems to be suffering from what we call squamata stigmata. Though in all my years of work as an ordained Gregorian gecko, I've only ever read about it. But father, what is it? What will happen to her? The squamata stigmata are bodily wounds, corresponding with the same wounds inflicted upon Jesus' lizard during his crucifixion. But will she be okay? The Lord only knows. Who are you, and what have you done with Christy? Ego Luciferius Lacerta Aguilis. Oh my God! This summer, what will you believe? Squamata Stigmata, in theaters, summer 2001. Is that asparagus? I did have some a few days ago. Mm. Well, uh, I mean, I definitely smell oats <laughs> and some millet. Smell pho. Oh my god, I want pho so bad. I made some last week Ooh. from scratch. That's a good idea. I should just do that. Yeah, I have to say, fish sauce was a new journey culinary-wise for me, mm-hmm. <laughs> but it is kind of necessary. Like, it doesn't taste as bad as it smells once it's like worked into the pho experience yeah that's like one of those ingredients that you have to use yeah because it goes bad yeah yeah um well but this isn't a fish sauce podcast <laughs> could be We're here to answer questions i just have to say really quick on the bottle i bought it had like a picture of a fish. It had a picture of like a crab and it had a picture of like prawns. And then right below it, it said does not contain fish 
crustaceans or lobsters or crabs or something. They just included a picture of everything that was not included (laughs) because it's just anchovies. It's just anchovies. That's funny. Essentially. Yeah. (laughs) Well, now we know. Again, this isn't a fish sauce podcast. (laughs) Fish sauce, the podcast. Do I hear spinoff? I mean, hey, you know I'm open to it. (laughs) Let's give you some more work to do. Brand Clubby is definitely going to throw some support behind it. Throw some spores? Yeah, some spores. <laughs> With the okay. fungus couch distribution system. Throw some spore behind it. That is so funny. Okay. Rosemary from Colorado Springs asks... Oh, yeah, we're in the feed bag. Um, Rosemary from Colorado Springs writes, Given the strictures of quarantine life, I'm throwing a dinner party for my horses. What should the theme be? Rosemary, I love what you're doing here, first of all. Yeah. We don't think horses can get COVID, do we? But if they're your horses and they're on your ranch, it's like they're in your pod. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, like, okay. it's a great idea to throw a dinner party for your horse friends instead of your human friends. I think that it's winter. We're talking about Colorado Springs. It's cold. It's mountainous there. I think it should be like a snow princess themed party where like each horse has to come in their like best snow princess adornment. I love, I love that. Sounds pretty. I imagine a lot of like obviously faux fur stoles and a lot of like white glitter and mm-hmm. Oh, I love it. A good amount of bedazzlement. Of course. Of course. Horse bedazzling. Not on the horse, but on their like. Sure. Sure. Cloaks and things. Yeah. On their horse blankets. A lot of bedazzled horse blankets. Bedazzled horse blankets. Certainly. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking like an under the sea theme. Oh, that's cute. Why not? Like you can invite some seahorse friends and you could like decorate the barn. Kind of like throw up some blue you know just kind of like fabric liner like make it look like you're under the sea do some streamers to make it look like fun seaweed you know it's just it would be a very easy barn decoration yeah it sounds like it and then you could do like i don't know oats drenched in fish sauce (laughs) sure some fish sauce yeah that sounds really gross that sounds gross i don't think those horses want that but Anyway, the horses would definitely be into the under the sea redo of their barn. Yeah, house divided. I vote for a winter princess theme. And I vote for under the sea theme. Ding, ding, ding. Ding, ding, ding. All right. Next up, a question from Jack, friend of the pod. Hey, Jack. Key question, friends. If lobsters pee out of their faces as part of both fighting and mating communication, how does a lobster who is into pee play communicate their interest but not accidentally strike up a BDSM relationship with a potential partner? So, like, what if you're into pee play but not BDSM? How do you delineate when pee is used for both fighting and, what was it, mating? Sure, sure. This sure. is this is fascinating. I'm not, and probably my favorite question ever to come through the feedback. I guess I just imagine that like when seeking out partners for pee play, you don't like lead with peeing in their face. But lobsters seem to just be peeing in each other's faces all the time. So I guess 
it's a sort of issue of like, well, what does that even mean? Does that mean that all lobsters are into pea play, essentially, I guess? Like, I don't, I'm not quite sure. Or my question too would be, is this their only mode of, is peeing on each other their only mode of communication? Because if they have other means of communication, maybe they could go one of those routes and say, okay, so I'm going to pee on you, but I mean this in like a, like a sexy way. Like, I don't mean this as an act of aggression. I mean, this as an act of like getting us primed for mating. Hmm. Yeah, maybe it has something to do with how they like wiggle their antenna or their their uh, claws or what chemicals yeah, they put claw. in their urine or something like that. You know what I mean? One snap for yes, two snaps for right, no. Right, exactly. <laughs> Things like that. Yeah, yeah. That is such a great question. I really love that. Yeah, I don't know. I guess it's about the intent of the urination. Yep. I would say the intent of the urination, the chemical quality of the urine and also just maybe other nonverbal lobster cues that we're not aware of. Yeah, actually that's an interesting line of inquiry right there is that like, do you think there's like a difference in the chemical makeup of the pee when it's like an aggression pee? Because this could, this question could even be like simplified in terms of how do we know you're in the mood to mate versus being an aggressor sure sure but is aggression sure. only directed at like same-sex lobsters Ooh. then how would same-sex interested lobsters handle that yeah i don't know i don't know i think that ultimately the answer to this question is communication communication is everything between partners and i think maybe that's like what we should really kind of focus on this i think it's a, a lot about like venue and like what's your dynamic with people you know it's about communication and it's about lobsters talking to other lobsters about their interests yeah yeah exactly ding 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 thanks for that Jack. yeah jack's hit us with a sub question how does one negotiate water sports with water creatures and what supports the kinky crustacean community I feel like we've kind of already addressed the first part of this question. Like it, it's really about individual species and clades really. And like, you know, the cultural histories of the individual creature, right? <laughs> but in terms of what supports the crustacean community, I mean, it's probably like the Marianas Trench Leather Association or something like that. And they have like... <laughs> you know, a yearly weekend where they rent out a Radisson Inn and the convention center <laughs> and all the crustaceans descend upon some sort of suburban town in like, you know, Virginia or whatever to take over a hotel for a weekend. That is... To scare hotel staff. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. <laughs> yeah, ding, ding, ding. I sense more um, Brent Clubby business opportunities <laughs> <laughs> the brand clubby kinky crustacean weekend yes. sort of munch weekend package yeah yeah that's funny well hey <laughs> keep the questions coming animalfanclubpod at gmail.com we love to hear we from sure you. do and 
Uh, hope you have a fantastic week in animals. Cacao! Cacao! Bye! Bye! Animal Fan Club is created and produced by us, Meredith Jurgens and Mike Luno. We also create all our original music and sonic experiences. Send us your listener feedback questions to animalfanclubpod at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at animalfanclubpod, at Meredith Jurgens and at Mike underscore Luno. And don't forget to rate and review our podcast on your favorite app. That really helps us out. Thanks for listening to our show. We hope it makes your heart and spirit glow. We'll be here next week for another meeting of the Animal Fan.